Hello and welcome back to the Primary Education Voices podcast, the podcast dedicated to the exciting world of primary education with me, your host, Matt Roberts. If you're a member of staff in primary education, then this is the podcast for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a special guest who works in a primary setting and be finding out what inspires them. We'll also be asking them for their top tips, resources and philosophies that they are passionate about in this wonderful profession. And of course, share some of the funny stories that happen along the way. Uh, Today, we sat down with Rob Late, who is uh, known on Twitter as Articulate. That's A-R-T-I-C-U. L-A-I-G-H-T. We had a wonderful discussion about all things school development and evidence-based practice, particularly and specifically about evidence-informed practice. Um, a really interesting discussion we have here, and it applies to so many. It applies to new early, early career teachers and all the way up to senior leaders in, in how we think about what we op- apply into our practice in the classroom. Uh, Rob is a year six teacher, an assistant head teacher, and an evidence lead in education. And he was recommended to us uh, for the podcast by Tom Griffith. So I'm very excited to share this uh, chat with you. Let's sit back, relax, and enjoy this uh, discussion that we had with Rob late. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Rob Late. How are you doing today, Rob? I'm good, thank you, Matt. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Doing good, thank you. Getting towards the end of our Christmas holidays, but still making the most of every day we can, I think, is, uh, is what Yeah, I'm absolutely. Doing. Brilliant. Well, let's uh, dive in, first of all, with your quick fire questions, as always, on the podcast. Uh, first of all, Rob, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, so it's at Articulate. So um, my, my surname is Late, L-A-I-G-H-T, uh, and I've, I have a, a love of puns. Uh, so, so my Twitter handle is to uh, articulate. Love that. When I, when I, when I, when, I, when uh, Tom uh, recommended you and shared that uh, Twitter name with, me, I was like, love it. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. So people can uh, find you out on Twitter. That's great. Mm-hmm. How many years have you been in primary education, Rob? I think this is year. This is my eleventh or twelfth. It's eleventh or twelfth. It's. It's. Um, I'd have to go back and count by cohort, by class. I have to specifically remember each class I've taught and then I'd be able to tell you for sure, but I think it's my 11th year in teaching. Yeah, it, it starts to get trickier as the years go on, I think. And I think as well that COVID's really not helped because I had two different cohorts during that year and that made, made things yeah. confusing as well. So that was that was an odd year. Um, what has been your primary journey so far then? So in those 11 or 12 years, what roles and responsibilities have you had? Uh, so I've, I've worked um, my first year um, as, as a fully qualified teacher. I actually didn't get uh, an interview let alone a job so I did a year of supply teaching which was really interesting um lots around kind of central Birmingham um and then from that I ended up being given basically kind of um a rolling I, I was going to the same schools every week they were asking me to come back so I'd have one school on a Monday and Tuesday and one school Wednesday to Friday um eventually one of those schools asked me to stay um and that was great I got to do my NQT uh, my second year there but it was in Stafford um, so it's 50 miles away from my house and I was driving there and back each day. Um, so I moved to my, my current school and I've been there for eight years, I think. Um, teaching mainly upper key stage two. Um, and then uh, I'm the assistant head teacher at the Coppice Primary School in Whittall. Um, fairly new to senior leadership. Um, and then I also work as an evidence lead in education for Billsley Research School. Um, who are local to us, and it's the local um, research school through the um, Education Endowment Foundation. So I do work for them as well, um, certain number of days each term. 
Excellent. Fantastic. Sounds really interesting. I can't wait to talk a bit more about that role as well. Um, what's your uh, favourite subject and why? Um, well, English is the subject that I, I did my degree in and uh, it's the subject that I've been the subject leader for at my school for a long, long time. So um, reading, writing, anything with story, to be honest. So I'm also partial to history. Uh, any any chance to tell stories or co-construct stories with children is uh, my favourite thing to do. Excellent. Love that. And in your own education, Rob, uh, did you have a favourite teacher and why were they your favourite teacher? I had I had um, a really odd journey to um, teaching, actually, because I, I really didn't like school. Um, I really had quite a negative experience, particularly of primary school. Um, and we probably don't have the runtime for me to go into it, to be honest. Uh, but it involved, you know, being part on a partial timetable. I was actually excluded when I was in year six. Um, and I kind of my my opinion towards school improved as I got older, but it wasn't a very kind of positive association. I kind of got into teaching more through um well, first of all, my brother is autistic and um, a couple of years younger than me. And so I, I had always kind of developed a personality of somebody who would be very kind of patient and very uh, much explaining and very much kind of supporting. Uh, and then I actually had a friend um, who uh, was from Iceland and his brother could speak English, but struggled with the subject. Uh, so I actually first got into teaching or first started thinking about it through kind of mentoring or supporting and then figuring oh actually you know I find this really fulfilling I can see kind of myself doing it and and yeah and then gave it a go from there so it's, it's a bit of a weird one in that my own experience of school was not great mm. um, and there's lots and lots of reasons for that um, but I kind of found my way into primary education through through kind of teaching through uh, oh. dipping toe in the water and and finding that it, it kind of suited me uh, felt like I, I enjoyed it and felt like I was good at it as much as you can tell that you're good at it um, so yeah that's where I kind of came from wow that's interesting that. Took it from think, there. yeah uh, so uh, well let's let's go along that a bit further then so obviously this is kind of what's inspired you to become involved in primary education is this uh, this um, mentoring I, mean, I have I have an autistic brother myself and so it's it's interesting how it develops those qualities of patience and just taking small steps and trying to explain that and i think that's really interesting so what then uh, obviously you, you you explained how that led you into thinking about the route of teaching uh, where did where did that become more of a, rather than a thought process uh, to an actual avenue you explored where, where did that begin then i think that came from my mum to be honest um because i think for many years probably like the first 13 14 years of being alive she'd been happy if i'd have done anything just if, if i could find my way into some sort of fulfilling work then she'd have been fine mm. um but when i started doing this kind of um mentoring and, and i'd go home and i'd talk about what i'd done she really kind of started pushing that she's like you know you'd be brilliant at that you know you've got a lot of you know, you're really good with your brother and you've, you've got a lot of patience and you're really good. You're really kind of good at helping people or you care about people and these sort of things. So my mum then kind of pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. Um, and no one from my family had kind of gone on to um, higher education before, really, um, on either side, mum's or dad's side. Um, but so it was her really that then I don't know whether I'd have motivated myself enough as a teenager, uh, but it was her really that kind of pushed me towards you should try this you should go find a work experience you should go and do voluntary stuff you know you should go and look at what the options are for university and things and yeah i can't take any credit it was all my mom really <laughs> well that's too right as well moms are great um 
so with that then so obviously that kind of led you towards the teaching then so what why primary why did primary stand out to you then or just particularly as you mentioned that you know your own primary experience was you know not the best for, for you yeah i mean that was definitely a factor in it um a chance to to kind of do that and and kind of meet people who were like me i guess and and kind of try and support in that way but i actually had to go at both on my degree i did key stage two three um it mainly came from um i had a very bizarre school placement uh key, my key stage three placement um it was supposed to be key stage three but they actually had me teaching as level media oh, uh, wow. and i was nine, 19 at the time so i was, I was and I'm, I'm a late birth august birth as well so i was kind of a few months older than than the people i was supposed to be teaching and I, it was bizarre. I, I tried to grow a beard to look older and all sorts of weird stuff. And, and from there, it was kind of, right, let's let's go primary. Um, and then once once I was in primary, I knew that's where I'm going to be. You know, that year of supply teaching I did, I went the whole range kind of reception through six. Um, fell into a bit of a niche in kind of upper key stage two, um, you know, which I, I always enjoy, particularly from the reading and writing point of view, the, the subject knowledge and the the kind of freedom and capability that's there. Um, but I, I did give kind of key stage three teaching a go and I was a bit young for it at the time. Um, that's That was one of the key kind of factors in the decision-making, uh, but I'm very, very glad to have found my way to where I am. That's brilliant. No, thanks for sharing that. It's really fascinating to kind of hear different teachers' journeys into the education and just what inspires them with that as well, which is great. Um, Fantastic. Well, let's talk then about a funny story then from your time in primary education. Obviously, we all have those stories that happen and uh, experiences. Sometimes we can't share some of them, obviously. But uh, yeah, I've edited a few out that were a bit, you know, lowbrow. Brilliant. Well, uh, you want to share your experience with us then? Yeah. So um, I was trying to think through and I could think of lots of kind of kind of funny moments. But this one to me stands out as, as, you know, I I reminisce on this and find it very funny. in a very dry kind of uh, sitcom-like way. Uh, so I was I was on a residential visit, which I've, as being an upper key stage two teacher is something I've done for the last kind of 11 years. And this was two or three years ago, I was on a residential visit uh, and it was night and, and the other teachers had gone to bed. And I said, I'll, I'll stay up for a little bit and just check that everything's okay. Uh, when, you know, a group of children came racing out saying, a bat, a bat, there's a bat in the dorm. And I said, there's not a bat in the dorm. It's not a bat in the dorm, but I've gone down there uh, and it was actually a massive moth. Um, I think more so now in my memory. I think my memory, my unreliable memory has probably enlarged it kind of three, four times larger than it was, but it was this huge moth. Um, so I, I had to keep my eyes trained on it and say, right, you got to go get me a, a brown paper bag. I've got to deal with this. So I, I was there and eyes fixed on the moth, kind of heart was going, very kind of stealthily ninja-like crept up on it. Um, second or third attempt, I did manage to catch it in the bag. And it was kind of like, okay, got it. Sealed the bag, kind of walked across the room very carefully and gingerly and kind of set it out the window, at which point me and all the children in the dorm watched it fly in a kind of circle around the outside of their dorm and back in through the other window on the other side. (laughs) And it was a real kind of, um, you have to laugh (laughs) because it was just such a, an unfortunate kind of thing is I know like obviously like German word schadenfreude for uh, someone else's misfortune I'm not sure what the word is for your own misfortune but I'm, I'm definitely that kind of humor uh, <laughs> where you, you look at these unfortunate things happening and you just you have to laugh about them basically but yeah that was my my experience of getting rid of a bat um 
was kind of something that stuck out for me as uh, being very funny in a very dry kind of sitcom kind of way. <laughs> you could just picture it. You, are, you honestly could just picture it in a sitcom. Oh, yeah. I think it happened in slow motion. I don't know if that's my memory doing that again. But, yeah, I just watched it do a loop and then come back in through the other side. <sighs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, we we all know as teachers how when there's when there's a wasp or a fly in the classroom, just how everything just drops and you know you just lose everything at that moment. And so, actually, like I that. caught a wasp in a in a um, a tub for pencil sharpeners on my day one of my NQT year, and I, I do say that that's when I peaked. <laughs> day one, I peaked. I kind of tipped the sharpness out. I said, "Don't worry, everybody, I've got this. I <laughs> got him. Let him go." Uh, and I don't think I've ever been you know that cool with a group of children since in my eleven years of trying. <laughs> that's the moment you walk away and you have a little, a little strut you just think yeah i've got this yeah. got this yeah that's, it. <laughs> that's brilliant uh i love that and i love the, um, the just how all a lot of these funny stories seem to happen on these residentials as well <laughs> which yeah you know, it's not a surprise really when they when you get a, a, a cohort of children away from their their usual habitats <laughs> and all of that that's great yeah definitely brilliant well uh, thanks for sharing that that was really good uh let's move on then to your primary three so for the, the listeners uh, who, who may not know, uh, this the primary three are three things about primary education that is really important to our guest. Uh, there can be philosophies or ideas or specific resources they use in the classroom, but just three things about primary education that are really important to them. So thank you for sending me yours, Rob, ahead of time. We'll talk about these uh, three here. So first of all, we've got uh, don't design the future until you deeply understand the present was really interested to hear about your thoughts on this and have a good discussion about what you mean by that. So why is that so important to you, Rob? Yeah, so I, I tried to choose things that were basically pieces of advice that I've been given in the last couple of years because um, I've, I've kind of um, stepped into senior leadership at my school and I took part in um, something called the Exemplary Leadership Programme last year. Um, and this was a piece of advice that was passed on to me there from Catherine Morgan who is regularly tweeting out little kind of nuggets of wisdom. Uh, I, I sometimes wish I could, you know, take her brain and upload it into mine like the Matrix. Um, but but she kind of shared this quote, which is from um, Vivienne Robinson, I think. And um, it really kind of stuck with me and has stayed kind of very forefront of my thinking um, since then, because... Um, I think when I when I reflect on my experience of being a subject leader and experience of kind of schools um, implementing ideas, um, it's it's very easy to get stuck into a cycle of of trying to deliver on a lot of levels and deliver on a lot of different priorities at the same time, um, and sometimes that's led by uh, the allure of an idea you know, something that sounds really interesting, sounds really fun, sounds really challenging. Um, but I think when Catherine shared that quote with me about uh, deeply understanding the present, and that I think the depth is important, um, it really kind of made me think about actually, a, you know, good implementation or, or, or implementation that, that lasts is kind of very much geared towards the problems that you're seeing in your school. Um, and it's about kind of starting with an idea because we have you know intuitions you know the longer you're in teaching the, the the stronger and more regularly you have these intuitions about what you should be doing or what you should stop doing uh, and we have these intuitions but I think when when um, I think about that quote about deeply understanding the present that's about starting with your intuition but then kind of very thoroughly trying to diagnose 
you know, whether your intuition is correct, do the fact checking. Um, and this is something back to, um, through the, the Education Endowment Foundation's report on implementation, which I've, I've kind of shared some CPD as part of my role with Billsley Research School. Um, that idea that, you know, you'll, you'll have an intuition to begin with, but then you should kind of conduct a bit of an investigation to ask yourself, is the thing that I think is going to improve things, is, the, is that actually going to be the case? Um, and, you know, to do that by by seeing a lot of teaching, by looking at your, your internal assessment, looking at possibly national assessment if it's there. I know we haven't had it for a, a couple of years. Mm. By talking to teachers, talking to children, talking to parents if it's kind of relevant um, and conducting a thorough process to check that the thing you think you should be doing does match up with your school's priority. Mm. Uh, and then the other thing I think that that's a useful point there whenever I think about how I've got better at implementing things because <laughs> uh, like I say, I've, I've definitely been guilty of that kind of cycle of, of trying to deliver, deliver, deliver on a lot of different things at the same time. Um, I think the other thing that's really useful there is being aware of your own kind of biases mm. and being aware of that kind of confirmation bias of, um, you know, starting with the idea and then reverse engineering why you should be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that, I think, is about making sure that you've got you know, a culture where um, uh, your fellow senior leaders will kind of challenge you on your thinking or or where people feel like they can be kind of constructively critical of, of things that you're saying. And I think that's really, really important. So, yeah, I think one of the things that, that has really improved things at my own school has been um, trying to be a bit more strategic with changes that we make. And um, part of that, I think, is making sure that um, you've got really good processes of kind of quality assurance and, and that you've got really good processes of, of investigating the problem before you go on to bringing in something new. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think there's a number of things there which you've drawn out, which I think are really important for, for all school staff, whether you're a, a teacher in the classroom or you're a senior leader, when you're if you're leading a subject across the school or uh, kind of departments or, or phases or whatever it's important to uh, i like that point about confirmation bias i think we can very easily gear our kind of searching and our digging deeper to specifically find what we want to find rather than like you say just digging deep and just looking to see what we see rather than looking specifically for those things so in terms of obviously you mentioned you've led a lot of cpd on this and you've, and you've worked with the education endowment foundation i'd love to hear First of all, really, what your thoughts are in terms of what can teachers do to to dig deeper? What what things do you find or think are the most effective ways to find what they're looking for uh, if they're trying to think about implementing something or changing something in their practice? Yeah, so in terms of exploring the, the problems can happen at different levels. Obviously, teachers can kind of in, investigate their own classroom, uh, which is sometimes difficult and sometimes it, it, it does involve um, again, having the right culture wherein you can ask subject leaders in your school, you know, come and give me feedback on what you see, or you can kind of look at the um, performance in lessons or performance from, from children's books and, and, and ask questions about, okay, well, how can I, um, how can I do more of this or how can I get more, whatever you think the issue is, whether it's kind of around the role of talk or whether you think it's around the role of, you know, something to do with um, writing and, and 
um, the way kind of sentences are constructed and varied and things. It's, it's being able to work with colleagues. I think doing that in isolation is really difficult. Mm. Um, and then on a, on a school leader level, um, obviously there's more kind of capacity there to see a broader range of, of what's happening. Um, but I think it's, it's really important. Uh, one of the things I think that will really um, help schools to do that well would be to make sure, first of all, that the, like I say, the culture in the school is right in terms of people feeling comfortable enough to try things, feel, people feeling comfortable enough to offer feedback or um, ask questions of initiatives. Because I think we've, you know, I'm not sure if this is just my experience, but I think we could probably, most people could relate to the experience of having someone in a leadership position bring something to you that they're really passionate about and then you feel like you you kind of have to do justice to it. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that will really help is schools that do have a culture of people being able to, you know, just raise your hand and say, you know, can I check that I understand this right? Or can I ask whether this is actually appropriate to our context? Is that feasible for what we want to do for our children specifically? Um, and I think that's kind of broad and maybe a bit nebulous as an answer. Um, but I think it comes, that's what it comes down to is having that kind of constructive culture where, um, you feel like um, challenge is kind of welcomed and taken in the spirit that it's meant taken constructively. Yeah, no, I think I think that's really important. And I think in some cases it's tricky to be specific with with this particular point because so so many schools are so different and so many schools have different structures and different leadership structures and different numbers of staff. And so thinking about how we do this, there is no one size fits all, I think, is, is the key thing, really, like you say. But I think that um, it's interesting that one of the things you, you seem to be mentioning a lot is this idea of collaboration. It's this idea that working with somebody else to be able to question or look at or analyze or pick out what you're doing whether you're a teacher in the classroom and you have someone else come into your classroom because doing it as you say in isolation is very difficult or whether you're a senior leader a senior leader and welcoming kind of feedback and input i mean the the, the things that i've implemented have all have often worked better when i've worked with a team across the school and they've kind of tried it out for themselves in their classroom and they've come back with ideas on how it's working really well and and in some cases in many cases where it's not worked out so well but we can adjust it and make it work in this way so i think like you say it's using and and inviting others with you on that journey however that looks in your school yeah, is really important. And, yeah and i think this is something that i say when i work with you know young teachers or not or early career teachers especially sometimes it's just the working memory of actually teaching so to have somebody come and watch means that they are focusing on these things they can focus on you know, how effectively, uh, you know, type of questioning is being done. Whereas to expect the teacher to be able to reflect on that in the moment, there are too many other things that you're thinking about at the same time. And I often say when I'm giving feedback, I say, well, I'm, I'm noticing these things because I'm not thinking about all of the things that you are, <laughs> essentially. And I think that's, um, again, something that I feel quite, quite grateful for in my own school that, people will come you know I could, I could ask ask somebody to come and, and watch me deliver a lesson and and they'll be able to offer me insights because they'll know that my working memory is overloaded as everybody's is when they're teaching uh, and they'll just be able to pick up on things that, uh, that could be done done better and there's nothing in that that's um critical or mean-spirited it's just a case of you know the observer has got the working memory capacity to notice mm these things and once pointed out to you 
they're often kind of very common sense and, and easy to act upon. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of working memory of teaching a lesson doesn't always let you notice these things sometimes. Yeah, it's really, really important. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I agree with you completely there that often it, it requires that second hand because you are just focused on that process of teaching that you you are going to miss those things. And I think that's that's really key. Obviously, you mentioned quite early on that in order to do this really well, the culture has to be right. Uh, and I think this is probably one of the most challenging things, isn't it, where it isn't seen as um criticism or kind of making or making uh, things or picking at things perhaps but rather it's given as collaborative constructive and that it's helping each other through this process do you have any um, any examples of where you've seen schools that have built this culture really well and what they've done to try and build that culture in their schools i think one thing that's helpful here is is making sure that you've got a kind of a, a collective understanding or, or that you've, you've basically got to over communicate the messages that you want. So one of ours is that, you know, um, everything can work somewhere and, and nothing can work everywhere. Mm. And as long as we know that, and we all think that, and we all hold that to be true and we repeat that message over and over again, that means that whenever we're trying to bring in something new, the question isn't, you know, does this thing work at all? It's, it's does it work for us? Does it work for our context, our children, does it work with the other things that we're trying to deliver, the other priorities that we have? Um, and, and it's that kind of, you've got to have mantras, I guess, kind of things that you share and you over-communicate um, to the point of hopefully everybody absorbing it and everybody holding those things to be true. Um, similarly, you know, those kind of messages around teachers and, and um, the kind of working memory of teaching I'd like to think that that's something that, that I say and, and fellow school leaders in, in my school say often enough that they they become part of, you know, what you're sharing. When I'm giving feedback on someone, I'm not saying, well, I'm going to tell you what I think of your lesson because I'm more qualified to or I know more or anything, any ego related kind of mm. conversation like that. It's saying, well, I'm going to share my observations because I was focusing on that, whereas you were focusing on, you know, the behavior, your questioning, your explanation all the environmental factors and and so we have to kind of over communicate that thing that when we come to see teaching and, and to give feedback on it we're doing it because we kind of we learn from reflecting on experience and it's not easy to do that when you're thinking about a thousand things but it is easy easier to do that when a, another party comes in and they're able to focus on something specific to feedback on so we'll say oh we're going to focus today on on the kinds of questioning that we use and, and how much kind of how much our questioning leads to deep thinking. So we'll come and we'll give you kind of feedback on specific types of questioning and how you did them well or how they could be improved further. Mm. We've got the brain, we've got the brain space to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you guys are thinking about lots of things at the same time. And so you might not pick up on those things. And and it's about kind of, I guess, having mantras. Uh, and then over communicating them to your staff. And again, like link back to my first point about not trying to do too many things at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, having a specific focus, I think just trying to do one thing really well or do one thing really strategically. Um, one thing maybe is a bit, you can, you can depend what position your school's in. It's easy for me to say this, but obviously all schools have different contexts and different pressures, but try and do a small number of things very strategically and thoroughly, mm. I think would always help whether, whether you're a teacher trying to solve the problems in your own class or a leader trying to solve the problems in your school, kind of uh, 
It's a uh, you know uh, Parks and Rec, the TV show. Yeah, uh, Ron Swanson yes. says to, he says, uh, "Don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a bit, <laughs> a bit like that, really. Yeah, and it's so right. I mean, obviously, you know, I know what you're saying. There's like many schools won't be focusing on one thing, maybe, but certainly a few things, no more than that. You need to be making sure you are putting that focus and that effort in and making sure that you're doing something right rather than doing so many things and not doing them right because people have only a capacity to do a certain amount of things and that's all of us. I think that's really, really important. Yeah, us... And I've definitely been, I'll point out that I've definitely been that guy who's led those staff meetings and said, right, you know, I want this done. You know, this is this is the thing that we're going to be doing now. Uh, and then the following week, I'm back again saying, right, everyone, here's what we're on. Here's what we're on now. And I've definitely been guilty of being that guy in the yeah. past for sure. Yeah. And I think, and certainly this probably applies more to senior leaders in terms of leading those whole school initiatives. You just need to remember how much you're asking the staff and think, well, is this something that can wait a bit longer whilst we embed and make sure we've got these things right first? But as a teacher, and I think in the classroom, we always obviously, obviously always want to improve. And so picking out a few things we can do in our classroom that's different, that's changing our practice, but not trying to do too many things at once because we're just going to the burnout in those situations. I think that's really important as well. Um, let's move on to your second of the primary three, um, because I, I really want to talk about this. Let's talk about the role of evidence in education. Uh, so why is that so important for you, Rob? Um, so I think I said at the kind of top of the show that one of my other roles is to work as an evidence lead for Billsley Research School. Um, and that was kind of something that that came about between a kind of collaboration between our schools. And, um, you know, I'd been doing a lot of reading and and trying trying to um get to grips with a with a range of different evidence through through academic reading about how to teach well um and it's something that i've always found really um kind of transformative again and again and again throughout my teaching career because um i think we i think i generally relied on intuition for the first few years of teaching and as a result it took me a long time to to learn how to do certain things that actually there was a strong evidence base for for doing these things well um and and when i look at kind of okay now that uh, in a role as an evidence lead i guess what i'm trying to do is kind of make that process shorter for other teachers um and and i think we're generally i've, I've worked in a, in not not that many schools so i can't speak as a, a sweeping generalization but i think we do prioritize our intuition um highly uh, as a profession and rightly so because um, it's a very specific job and, and, and we learn a lot through doing it and reflecting on it um, but I think there are um, plenty of places that we can can look for uh, advice about how to teach better and I do think that teaching is uh, an academic profession one way you can learn about how to do it well um, and I think that there that what, what we say when, when I do my work with um, as an ELE is that evidence can give us best bets um you know nothing works everywhere everything works somewhere um but what we can do by by engaging with evidence is kind of figuring out the best bets for what we should be doing and what we should stop doing or what we should do less of mm. um these are not silver bullets that will will automatically solve you know whatever the issues you're seeing in your school but they are you know they'll give you better starting points things that are more likely to be successful. Um, and I think that um, evidence can do that for us, but there are a couple of pitfalls to it. I think it's one of the reasons why I wanted to to kind of chat about it. Um, 
one we, we kind of have two extremes um sometimes we have kind of extreme resistance to evidence that idea that teaching is something that we should base entirely on intuition um but actually there's there's a there's plenty um of kind of robust <laughs> evidence out there for for how memory works and, and how we can better support children to to understand the things that we're trying to teach them um and then the other thing probably the other extreme of that is being over reliant on evidence being being evidence led mm-hmm. and i've again i've definitely been this guy in the past who, who who is very attracted by kind of the allure of oh here's what the evidence tells me and you can quickly get yourself down a rabbit hole of kind of confirmation bias there mm. um i think the difference i think between ideally what you want to be is evidence informed which means that you kind of you engage with evidence you you read it but you in, you engage with it in a kind of um critical or strategic way you ask questions about it um you know when you read oh you know this thing it has so ever many months outcome on progress it tends to be that headline data can be really appealing really attractive um, and I think probably what some people, and I've definitely been this guy before, but what we kind of miss there is a bit of a kind of a superficial engagement with what the evidence says. Um, and we see, oh, plus plus nine months by doing, you know, this certain thing. Um, and then you kind of throw yourself into that fully without really asking questions about, well, how was the evidence produced? Mm. Were the schools involved similar to mine? Um, or without kind of, looking at the feasibility for your own setting um in terms of the the kind of the size of the groupings or in terms of the the specific methods of of delivering an idea um i think probably those are the two extremes that we're trying to avoid is is kind of that full evidence resistance where you think you know teaching is something where you couldn't possibly tell you know all children are different so you couldn't possibly tell me how to do this based on evidence whereas actually the way we learn is is more similar than it is different and then that the other side of it is that kind of um, evidence kind of uh, led where you don't ask those questions of um, whether something can work in your context, because um, I think you can you could find evidence for whatever you wanted to find evidence for uh, and, and, and easily say, oh, well, I'm, I'm evidence led. So you know, I'll, I'll find this evidence to justify the things that I want to be doing in my classroom. Um, but I think the the kind of the ideal sweet spot and the one that we often talk about when I do my work uh, for Billsley Research School is where you take the uh, what the evidence says, the kind of the best bets, you integrate that with your professional understanding gained from years of being in the classroom, and you kind of find the overlap in the in the Venn diagram. You kind of integrate the uh, integrate what the evidence says with your own experience and your own context and your own school. And you kind of find the best starting point for improving teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that it will immediately yield, you know, all these brilliant results and you'll see those results. Um, but it's that that is a good starting point. And I think it's another thing as well when we're saying um, not to do too many things at the same time and actually be really strategic and robust with one thing. It's much easier to do that when the thing you're trying to do is backed up by kind of robust evidence that fits your context, it's much easier to hold your nerve and say, let's concentrate on getting this thing right. Because what the evidence is telling me is that if we can get this thing right, and if we can make it work for our context, then we'll see the outcomes and then we'll see the improvement for children. 
that, that you know, I, I loved that and I loved that explanation and, made, and the way you made it very clear about what we're not talking about in terms of using evidence in, in education is that everything we do should be fully dictated by just evidence because unless we've dug a bit deeper into that evidence and we think about how it applies to our school if that evidence that was carried out if it was done with a school that's similar to our context and if not then how might it need to look different or will it even work in our context uh, I think those are some really, really uh, interesting things that you've said there about being evidence informed and not evidence led. And I know, and I know what you're saying. There almost seems to be a dichotomy at some, with, with some individuals about you either, you know, you don't use evidence or you use evidence. And I think it, it's finding that way that, we, of course, we we recognise that that evidence is important. As you mentioned, we work with learning, we work with, um, you know, teaching and and learning in our in our classrooms, and that there is best bets in education which if we look at that evidence we see that there but it is like you say not being completely fixed on well this is what this says so we must do it this way it's seen- yeah it said plus nine months so i must get plus nine months progress somehow um you know the, the, it's that the devil's often in the detail um but we're busy people and and we have a lot to think about and i think sometimes what that leads to is kind of a super a superficial engagement maybe with what the evidence says um, whereas actually, you know, part of my role with Billsley Research School is to help make sure that the the detail is understood because the detail is often the crucial bit um, and to make sure that, um, you know, what the evidence says doesn't end up being kind of mutated. Um, and there's kind of a, a balance in that, um, particularly, um, like I say, I, I work for Billsley Research School through the Education Endowment Foundation. And part of what they do is to synthesize research into accessible reports mm. You know, they read a lot so that you can read a little yeah. and, and they kind of produce these reports and they'll say something like, um, oh, reading comprehension plus plus six months. I don't, I don't know. I can't remember the specifics, but a superficial engagement with that might lead to, oh, yeah, I know what that means. That's the assessment framework, inference and prediction and, and so on. Um, whereas actually, if you look at the detail of what the report is saying, it talks about that much more as a kind of um as kind of strategies to teach through kind of metacognitive approaches to, to reading. And, and if that detail is missed, then sometimes you can get this kind of, um, uh, I think in, in the book teaching walkthroughs, they call it a lethal mutation yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on an idea. Um, and part of, I think the challenge uh, for school leaders or evidence leads is making sure that first of all, the detail is understood because the detail is often crucial and then being very kind of guarded against um, the the lethal mutations that that might occur. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you say, it, it's and the, the, this idea of lethal mutations can have a big effect because then, you know, people are spending so much time and energy on something which isn't going to make that difference because they've not understood the, the evidence. And then, you know, there's all that improvement that's been lost. And I think that that is su- such a thing that that schools teachers and school leaders need to look for uh, in terms of because obviously as you mentioned teachers and school leaders are so short on time and I think that one of the biggest issues that we have with trying to use research is like you say is misunderstanding it and applying it the wrong way because we've just not taken it the, the way it needs to be what are some places or some suggestions that you have for teachers or school leaders who want to become more evidence informed but they just don't know where to begin or they don't know where to look for for that evidence which like you say they can read as little amount as they need to to completely understand what they should try and do for their best bets what would your suggestions be there i think you want to um 
find out kind of what your school believes in, in terms of a, an approach to teaching, you know, whether it's teaching walkthroughs or, or whether it's a school that follows another kind of framework. But you want to know what your school believes in as a, as a framework for um, what good teaching and learning looks like. And then from that, um, like I say, I, I work for the Research School Network through the Education Endowment Foundation. So I'm always going to point people in that direction to begin with, um, because I do think the guidance reports are you know, really useful at synthesizing information and synthesizing kind of lots of studies, reading a lot so that you can read a little. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think the probably the thing to do there is once you have that headline information or once you have that summary of information is to make sure you interrogate the full report. And again, this is a this is a difficult balance to strike because for for evidence leads, we've got to kind of make things accessible, but we've also got to avoid lethal mutation. So it's it's making sure that you know, the, the EEF, for example, will produce summary posters and they're brilliant because they're, they're, they're memorable and you can put them up in your office and you can say, right, these are the things that I need to think about and care about. But at the same time, you got to make sure that you have actually read into the detail then in the report. What does it say? Uh, if it rent, if it references specific studies, um, often you can, you can go on the EEF website and you can look at, um, some of the studies that they carry out and, and there will be headings on there that say, what were the schools that took part in this trial? Like what were the characteristics of those schools? What are the limitations of the evidence? Because, you know, these are the kind of questions that you should ask yourself before you dive headfirst into something to kind of look through. And, and this is all on the EEF website, um, but all to look through kind of, are were the schools involved in the trial similar to my own? If not, what problems might that cause? Um, how was the idea, if it's an intervention or if it's a strategy, how was it delivered? Do I have the capacity to deliver it in the same way or is it not feasible? Mm -hmm. And and being able to ask those questions. So I, I think, you know, starting with something like a, a guidance report from the EEF, which is a synthesis, and then um, making sure that once you've identified the area that you want to work on, you then go through that process of asking questions of it, particularly if you can do that with, teacher and particularly if you can do it with another teacher who often disagrees with you mm. <laughs> if you have somebody who you know actually we we do have kind of not opposed not opposite philosophies because you probably wouldn't find yourself working so closely in the same school but yeah. you know we'll find oh, somebody who won't automatically agree with everything I say or, or someone who I know has some different beliefs to me mm. um, because if you can talk to it talk something through with that person and let them poke holes at it it allows you to interrogate your own thinking in the same way as well. Uh, and again, I think that that relies upon having the right kind of culture in your school. But definitely, if you've got somebody who doesn't always agree with you to challenge your thinking, it can be a really useful uh, exercise to go through. Yeah, no, I think I completely agree with you on that last point as well. In fact, well, everything you said, I, I really, I really agree with as well. But having someone there that can and that the, that you know has some different views and opinions on things to you is a really useful thing actually because like you say what what you then bring forward is a much more analyzed and and poked and i'm trying to think of what the word i'm trying to say is but basically it's been much more thought through and it's been addressed and looked at from different perspectives and that is therefore a lot more robust rather than people that will just agree with you and say oh yeah yeah it'll be great and then you're going ahead with that 
which is really, really useful. Uh, I think that actually this kind of takes us on nicely to the third of your primary three. Um, so let's go on to that now. And that's the advice of doing a pre-mortem before introducing a new approach or initiative. And I think we've kind of touched on some of the things with this already, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on the importance of doing this pre-mortem before you try something new in your classroom. What do you mean by that then? Yeah, so this is something I, I can't I can't claim. Um, th this was something that, I, that was taught to me um, on the exemplary leadership program last year, and it was Tom Sherrington. Um, was the first person I think who who I remember talking about this, but it really stuck with me as as a, a really useful idea. Um, so the idea of a pre mortem then um, it's a bit morbid to, to a bit of a morbid kind of label for it, but essentially you ask yourself, okay, let's imagine this initiative that we want to bring in. Let's imagine ourselves six months down the line, nine months down the line, twelve months down the line, and it's fallen completely flat. Mm. What happened? What are the things that might have caused that to be the case? Um, you know, and, and you get to ask yourself questions then about, you know, did we have, do we have the buy-in of all the staff? Does it align with our framework of what we think makes good teaching and learning? Is it in conflict with some of the other things that we do? Um, do staff have the training, the skill, the understanding to actually implement this or actually do we need to stop? And before we ask them to implement this new idea, we need to spend some time on subject knowledge or pedagogical knowledge. Um, ask questions about feasibility and that, that again goes back to what did the evidence say did we did we investigate that thoroughly enough did we ask enough questions of the evidence or were we led by it were we attracted by the allure and then we went you know uh, diving diving in at the deep end um, you know what is there the time what did we give the staff the time and space to actually implement this properly um, and I think as, as doing a pre-mortem on something, asking yourself, right, if it, if it, if it, you know, 12 months down the line, it's dead, what went wrong? What killed it? Um, and that can kind of get you ahead of some of the problems that you might face. And really, um, particularly if you're doing it as a collaborative activity with you, with other senior leaders, it can be a really useful idea because you, you do, it does force you to think in those terms, maybe a bit pessimistically, um, but, but thinking like a pessimist in this regard can really help you make sure that you've got a really thorough process for how you implement it. Um, and, and, and often actually, you know, we'll, we'll try and implement something at school or we'll talk about something that we want to do. And then we'll say, it, it might be that we end up putting a pause on things or actually we, we realize that there are some prerequisite steps that needed to come first. Uh, one of the things, for example, we talked about was instructional coaching. Uh, and there was, there was a lot being written about instructional coaching. And we, we had a lot of really kind of positive conversations about it. But one of the things we realized through doing this kind of pre-mortem is that actually our shared framework for what we think good teaching and learning meant wasn't quite as solid as we thought, as we, as, as we would like it to be. Mm. Which meant that if we asked people to start using a model of instructional coaching, they might be telling each other different things or they might be pushing in different directions or, or kind of counteracting each other in different ways. So we said, okay, well, maybe what we need to do is a, is a limited group, a pilot group. Mm. And in the meantime, we need to work with our staff on their kind of on aligning our kind of framework for what makes good teaching and learning. If we can do that. And if, if six months down the line, we're all aligned and we all think the same things are important or we're all thinking about the same things, then we could bring in more of a coaching model because then we'll all have a similar language or a similar framework to judge each other on rather than it being up to the individual's kind of opinion. Mm. And sometimes that can be a really useful thing to take that pause and say, right, 
if six months down the line this has fallen flat on its face what maybe would have caused that and often it's it's either um thinking through what what prerequisites need to be there what steps need to be there first um and sometimes it's about time and space as well sometimes it's okay if we ask them to do this now with all the other things that are going on and with all this other priority that we're working on at the moment i don't think we could really do that fully so one of the things that, I've, that we've done at my school um is that we only have whole staff meetings fortnightly now and then every other week is a, a year group implementation meeting. So a three, four entry school. Um, but what we do rather than moving priority prior to a different priority each week, and it's a new thing, we, you know, when someone puts together training, whether that's me or, or one of our other subject leaders, we'll say, right, plan for two weeks. One, where you're going to concentrate on developing staff knowledge and, and developing their understanding. And then the second week where you're going to, you know, first of all, assign them chances to talk and reflect about what it means for them and their classes but also give them time to do the resourcing yeah or give them time to do the extra reading or or have the conversations with each other and and create that space to actually do something with a staff meeting because otherwise you can have and i've been guilty of this you can have or at least what i thought were really productive staff meetings where you think yes i really got my point point over really well there you know i did a great job presenting what it was that i wanted to present but but nothing nothing or, or not enough happens with it and i think that's why having these kind of pre-mortem conversations that i you know i stole this from tom sherrington just to make it absolutely clear <laughs> uh it can be really useful to to thinking through okay what would what would stand in our way mm. in terms of getting this up and running and getting this really successful in our school and having that kind of pessimistic thinking can be a really useful exercise particularly again if you're in a culture where you're able to challenge each other and you're able to hold opposing viewpoints um because you know I, there's people like this in my school where i think look if i can justify it to them and they can prod my thinking enough then i can then I've, i'll have a solid understanding that it's definitely what i want to do yeah but it also requires you to to have that mindset wherein you take that the right way and, and you kind of you're not 100% convinced that you're definitely correct. You, you, you're wary of that confirmation bias and, you, and you're willing to listen to somebody challenge your viewpoint. It's it's a very, very much dependent on having the right culture and, and having the right kind of um, collective idea in, in your leadership team and, and your subject leaders. Um, but it can be a really useful thing to do to make sure that the stuff you implement actually has impact and the stuff you implement actually is sustainable over a long term and scalable over kind of you know broadening out across the school and and uh, adding layers to an idea rather than you know something that i've been guilty of in the past which is a, a kind of never-ending cycle of implementing new priorities without giving them necessarily the time the space and the practice to get them embedded fully um or kind of up to their full potential yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. And it's something which I've never thought to do is look and see rather than think about, you know, what can we do to make this successful? Think what would happen to make this not work? <laughs> or if this were not to work and this has failed, what has gone wrong? And then we can put those things in place. I really like that. And it's 
makes you kind of think differently and have that different viewpoints and see things from that different perspective to then start to address those uh, potentials. And I love, by the way, that the suggestion, the, the point about the staff meetings and using those in rather than a weekly, you know, this is what we're doing this week, this is what we're doing this week, this is what we're doing this week, which can get quite overwhelming for, for school staff who are trying to teach and learn, do teaching and learning in their classroom really well as well on a day-to-day -day basis. It's having that time of, here is something, let's develop this understanding on this, and the week after, embed that, do that extra work around it, work together and collaborate, as has been a really key message through all these three things on discussing together and finding ways that this works in our context. And just really, really interesting insights there, Rob. Thank you so much for that. Um, we're going to move on now to, to the last two questions because I don't want to take any more of your time, but thank you so much for today. First of all, who would you recommend for a future interview on this podcast? Uh, so there are a lot of, of primary colleagues that, I find really um, inspiring and really, um, you know, really helpful to talk to, really kind of prod my thinking. Um, chief among them, I think, would be Aidan Severs. Um, I think I've, I've been on Twitter since, I think, 2014, and I've been stealing from Aidan the entire time. Um, and, and he's someone who's a real, um, a real kind of Swiss army knife of a school leader. You know, somebody who's who's very knowledgeable in lots of different areas, and he's over the over the time I've I've been kind of um, talking to him on Twitter, we've talked about reading, about writing, about maths, about curriculum, about metacognition behavior. You know, he, he's got a wide range of things that he could talk about to a really high level. Um, I, I know also that he's taught uh, through school, so I think he could offer some really interesting perspectives about transition. Um, in an academic sense mm. from key stage two to key stage three which i think is something that not many people are necessarily talking about mm. or or there isn't that much out there to, because it's something i'd love to learn more about um maybe i'm wrong maybe it's all out there and i just don't know about it but he'd definitely be able to offer a, a really interesting perspective um in that regard so yeah um talking to aiden i think would be a, a really good episode of the podcast fantastic we'll get in touch with him and set that up that's brilliant and finally for you uh rob what is the best thing about being in primary education um the glory fame fortune <laughs> um i think um one one of the things i think that i've thought about this question before um usually around about the time that, that somebody uh, who's never been a teacher comes out in the national press and, and criticizes teachers, um, which is happening again today, which is great. Um, <laughs> it seems this never-ending cycle of people who've never done the job telling us all that we're doing it really awfully. Um, and so I've thought about this question before, and, and one of the things that I always kind of uh, think back to, again, it's, it's, a, it's another quote, and I can't pretend to be highbrow because it's another one that I stole from Parks and Recreation. Um, it's a, a a Roosevelt quote that far and away the best prize that life has to offer is, is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Mm. And I think that's abundantly true of being a primary teacher. Um, you know, the challenge is the thing that exhausts you, but it's also the thing that is, is at least equally rewarding, probably more, more rewarding than it is tiring. Mm. Um, and I think in the last couple of years, because, because I've, I've been in teaching for, I think 11 years now, I'm starting to, to get, um, former children that I've taught come back as adults or come back at, at 17, 18 years old. And, and sometimes you have a conversation with someone and you just think, you know, what an honor it is to have played a part, however small, in the journey to somebody becoming this kind of articulate and polite and smart, you know, really, you know, a really brilliant person who's ready to go away and, 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 and do all sorts of, you know, brilliant things. And, and that can be, 
that's something that I've really enjoyed uh, and something that I've really got a lot out of. But I think, you know, not many jobs really could offer the the variety that edu- uh, primary education does. Not many jobs would offer the challenge. And, and you know, I like that. <laughs> uh, no, no day is the same. And, and it's it's a job that is so kind of complex that we'll never fully solve it and, and get to a position where there's no challenge left for us to, to take anymore. Um, but yeah, I think there's um, a real kind of, um, it's abundantly true, I think, that, that it's work that's worth doing. Um, and I, I, you never waver on that thought. Whereas, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I tried telemarketing in between, you know, some of the university and, and that was the thing that confirmed for me that I should carry on trying to be a teacher <laughs> uh, because uh, it was something where it didn't have the same kind of challenge. It didn't have the same you know, life affirming kind of uh, quality to it that that being a primary teacher does, but you're reminded kind of constantly at at how important the job that you're doing is. And, and I I think that we're quite lucky to, to have that in, in our lives as primary teachers. Brilliant. No, that's a really good point. I think like you say, sometimes it can be so difficult. It can be so hard and the, the workload and the the amount you have to do is hard. But when you look, look and you just see the, the quality of life you give into these children and the variety that you have as a teacher and just, yeah, all those things you said. Really, really great, great answer. Um, thank you for joining us today, Rob. Really appreciate your time. No, it's been great. It's been nice. Uh, good talking to you. Yeah, and thanks for joining us on Primary Education Voices. Well, wasn't that another fantastic chat? Uh, Rob was an absolute inspiration, to be honest, when it came to uh, thinking about how we. Uh, lead school development in terms of how we think about using research and evidence in our practice and just making sure that we work collaboratively with our colleagues, whether we are working in the classroom as a teacher and we want to try and find some ways to develop and improve and how we invite a culture of having other people come and see us teach and giving that feedback. I mean, just that really important point about um, how as a teacher in the classroom in that moment, we are missing so many things about what could be done a bit better because we're in the thick of trying to do our questioning right and modeling things carefully and making sure our explanations are clear. And so having that um, the opportunity to have other people um, see us teach and focus on things that we want to try and improve ourselves is a really useful thing. Uh, and developing that culture in our schools is something that will really help um, us us all in our practice going through his primary three i mean not planning for the future until you understand your present um finding out what other things in our school and yes obviously we look at the the external data i think as, as a first port of call but actually going beyond that and thinking about teaching and learning in our school in particular subjects whether you're a subject leader or you're a teacher in the classroom and you're aware of something that you can do better in just digging deeper into what is it that is causing or what is it that we can try and do uh, to help us overcome any challenges or barriers in our classroom? Um, and that we need to be aware of our own confirmation bias as well. Um, so, you know, bringing in other people to be able to see um, how we can do these things better, uh, I think is really, really important. Um, looking at giving feedback as a senior leader, for those who are senior leaders or perhaps a subject leader as well, that this feedback is given because, again, as, as I just mentioned before, that, you know, as a teacher in a classroom, you've got so many things going on through your mind that, you know, you'll easily miss things out. And so having the opportunity to go into other people's classrooms to see them teach so you learn from them, I think is a great thing to do, but also so that people 
get a chance to have you in the classroom to help pick out anything that you may miss, because I think that's a really important aspect as well. With this led to a discussion about evidence and its role in, um, in primary education. And we've had the discussion a few times in various different ways through this podcast. And I think that finding that sweet spot, as, as uh, Rob mentioned, finding that balance between not being someone who just completely shuns evidence because, well, you know, it's evidence. It is backed up by uh, research, by uh, investigation and being able to find the best bets for education. I think that's a really important thing to use in your practice. Why wouldn't you? You know, if someone could give you um, a, an example of something that could help your children in your school, it would make sense to listen to it and to recognise it for the evidence that it is. But also, you know, looking at the evidence and saying, well, this is what happened with this um, study or this um, practice or this um, example. Um, these were the types of schools it worked in. Our school is perhaps a little different in this way. So will that work in our context? Maybe we should pilot it try some adjustments to it that fit our context better, but still have that idea behind it. Obviously, you know, if we do change what we've, um, the, the strategy or the implement or the innovation that has been backed up by research, recognize that could have an impact on the results that we get, you know, just making sure we have this discussion and making sure that we use evidence to inform our practice so that we have the best bets in education with those things that will make the best uh, impact for our context is a really useful thing to do. And uh, Rob's way of explaining that I thought was really, really important. And obviously um, him recommending that we look at where our school needs to Im improve, what our school believes in right now, looking at the Education Endowment Foundation and the very useful reports that they give, and then finding out what we can put into our practice as a school, I think is a really good way to go. And then of course, before you implement that change or that um, strategy or that innovation or whatever it is that you're looking at, making sure you do a pre-mortem, making sure you think what could go wrong to make this not work out, and then putting things in place to make sure that you avoid those issues or pitfalls or things that could make your um, your your change, your source, your developments that you want to make for your school, make that it would not make that work. And then address those and make sure that you can make give it the best possible chance to succeed. I think that's all really important things that were said uh, by Rob in this great discussion that we had. All that's left for me to say is that if there's a primary colleague that you'd love to hear more from, you can either contact me on Twitter through at PrimeEduVoices or me personally at MRoberts90Matt and let me know what inspiring, inspiring primary teacher, TA, support staff, school leader you'd love to hear on a future episode. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Please do share it with someone that you know. Hopefully this um, this podcast will help someone, be, be you a school leader or a teacher, an early career teacher, whoever you are. In the, role, in the realms of primary education. Please share it and let's get the word out to raise the primary education voice. Thank you again for joining me for another primary education voice and see you again next time when we will meet another inspirational educator.